This is our first Theology on Tap in, uh, in person, indoors, in like almost three years. Uh, yeah. So it really is wonderful. It's good to see some faces back. It's good to see some new faces. Uh, and speaking of faces, it's a, it's a good topic to come back for. Uh, today is actually a feast of the church. Uh, it's All Saints Day. At Holy Communion, like most Episcopal churches, we will be celebrating that this coming Sunday. But I have Kelly Lattimore with me today. Uh, and I loved the idea, when Kelly and I started talking about doing a Theology on Tap, it was Kelly who said, oh, we should do November 1st. All Saints is like a really good day. And I started thinking about it and I went, and it's a really good day to have Kelly Lattimore. Uh, we had a conversation two years ago now uh, when we were in full on you know, shutdown quarantine. It was up on Zoom. We were figuring out how to do Zoom to live to YouTube stuff. Uh, but we got to talk with a colleague of mine, uh, the Reverend Mark Bazzuti Jones, about iconography. And Mark has commissioned icons from Kelly and has since invited Kelly to come talk. Uh, with folks at Trinity Wall Street. And Mark talked about iconography in this really wonderful way that sort of fits with All Saints and with Kelly. So Mark talked about iconography and said, an icon shows us the image of God. And when an icon is doing its job, it's also iconoclastic. What does iconoclastic mean? Anybody know? You know, we got at least one PhD in history with church stuff in it, but uh, image, smashing. Image, image smashing, right? That, that an icon should also, at its best, help us dismantle an image. And Kelly's work does that in some really impressive ways. Now, the first image that I got to know Kelly through is hangs on the wall at Holy Communion. It, it's the image of the Trinity that Mark actually helped commission, where there are three feminine characters of three different races, all people of color. And it's in the image, or it's like an image that's famous, an icon by an iconographer named Rublev, the image of the Trinity. And it's this invitation to see this image again that really captured my attention. And Kelly has also canonized his own saints. Um, along with his partner, Evie. Like they, they've canonized some folks that, frankly, in my mind, ought to be canonized, like Marsha Johnson or like Polly Murray. Uh, Kelly has, has blurred that line that is at midnight tonight. So today is All Saints Day. And in the tradition of the church, tomorrow is All Souls Day. And there are some people for whom that, that line of midnight is a really fixed line. There are some people who are saints, and there are some people that just are souls. And I love that Kelly plays with that line and invites us to reconsider. So I want to introduce Kelly. I may be up here and asking him some questions if he needs any prompting. I don't think he probably will. But we'll talk we'll for just a little bit and then release you all to talk at your tables. So if you all will help me welcome Kelly Lattimore. Thank you. Yeah. Conversation, whatever, we can figure it out. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my partner and I do live in St. Louis. We've been here for four years now. We live in kind of the Shaw area near Mike um, and Ellis and Silas. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yes, this uh, All Saints Day to be here with you and have this conversation, uh, my partner and I, um, is really lovely. Um, I, 
Mark Bizzuti Jones, and the thing that Mike was talking about, we had this conversation over the Zoom. This is what Zoom was really beautiful, um, as most of you probably know and have used Zoom during the COVID times, as it, I, I was able to personally have conversations with people I would have never had conversations with otherwise, and just talking about saints and iconography and art and church and what is art in our church for and these kind of really uh, and meeting different artists that are doing work within the church and outside of it just artists in general and just all kinds of different people um, but having this conversation with um, with uh, Mike and Mark uh, Bazzuti Jones a priest this is right around the time of when George Floyd died and uh, the icon that uh, ended up going to Holy Communion which was called Mama and really talking about um, through this conversation that the work that I do with iconography, and I can kind of go through some more details of what really iconography is for those. Who knows what basically an icon is? Just raise your hand, kind of a basic idea. Okay, that's good. But <clears throat> this idea that um, for, the, for the icon, that uh, in the, the tragic death of George Floyd and everything that was happening, there's all these conversations as Evie and I were kind of uh, talking to different parishes across the country, all kind of different denominations about representation and about the image of Christ. And, and what we kept on seeing was that in America, the sad truth is, when it comes to the image of Jesus, is that we've unfortunately locked Jesus into one image. White, blonde, blue-eyed, Jesus, who is typically seen in your grandma's guest bathroom or something, you know. And the one image that we often think of was in the church that I grew up with was, was, was by this artist named Warner Salmon. And it was made in the 1920s. And you might have seen it. It's like Jesus, and he's like, like looking off. It's kind of like a 70s like yearbook photo kind of a thing. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And it, it was so popular. It was so popular. And it was so popular that they ended up taking that image and giving it to every single soldier who fought in World War II it was given that image before they went and fought overseas. Like that, and, it, so, and then it just blew up. And so what happens is we've locked Jesus in this one image as white. But the problem is, is that if Jesus is white, then potentially God is white, and then authority is white. So what does that mean for people who are not white? And what does that mean for a person of color when they see the image of Christ? But then what does that make a white person and how they then interact with people of color and those other people that aren't like them in, in their community? And so what's the hard conversations that we need to have, but what really what Mike and, and this original conversation we had with Mark was really delving into this idea of representation and, and the implications that we have eventually come up to with locking Jesus into one image. And so when Mark's talking about the work of iconography, and an icon is really what it is, and the way that I see it is, it's very traditional, you know, orthodox. In the West, we typically had stained glass windows, these other types of art form. The Eastern Orthodox Church really came up with icons as a way to depict the saints taking symbols and meaning about who a person was, or Christ, or the angels, or these scenes, and mashed them together in such a way where it became beautiful. I mean, art in the Latin is literally where two, come, two things come together in such a proper way that it's beautiful. That's what art means. Or, and, 
And so this idea that for the icon, it was like a window towards someone or a window towards um, Christ in some form that, um, that you could um, not only use in worship, but as a way to kind of then become the image, that the image is looking at you and asking you to, to change, you know. That's the, in the, the Gospels, the first words of Jesus, that's actually a bad translation. It's not repent, the first words of the Gospel, but actually the better Greek is he says change. That's the change. And that's what it's asking us to do. And so when it comes to iconoclasm or breaking images, what was so beautiful about what Mark was saying, he's saying in breaking images that there's something about the image of God that because of the way we've locked, especially in America, we've locked Jesus into one image that, we will, that will always be resisted. There's something about the, the image of God that will always be crucified because, and we've, we've saw it this week and how sad of a week it was here in St. Louis, we continue to crucify each other. And that, <laughs> that is the key. We continue to crucify each other. And so... What the work is, and what I want us to have, really have a conversation tonight, and why I'm so glad we get to do that, and I don't want to just be talking the whole time, is what then is the images that we need in our, in our places, our gatherings of worship, um, not just for the Christian church, but just as people of faith or just people in general? What images do we need to place before ourselves that are really going to, to, to move us towards change? and move us towards seeing the crucified peoples of history that are right in our neighborhood, that are in tent cities in St. Louis, living under bridges, or people like Michael Brown, who was killed several years ago, or the people that, you know, Alexandria and um, Jean, you know, people that they oppress that are right in front of us. And I think that has been then the theme that Evie and I have really wanted to bring to our work is really highlighting those saints that are among us here and now, the, the refugee, the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, um, the images of Christ that, that we really maybe aren't, the church has tucked away. <laughs> and we're really hearing from a lot of people within the church that they don't feel represented, not only in their skin, skin color and their culture, but also in their, their orientation, all of these things, and that the church is made up of all of these people. And so how do we kind of bring this, the multitude and diversity of people that really do make up the church before our communities of faith and new ways to see not only our neighbor, but then potentially see God in a new way and see each other in a new way and see Christ in a new way. And, and that's kind of a, really a big theme for everyone. I mean, we'll have more conversations about it, and it's kind of we can kind of talk about some certain images that, um, that Evie and I really created together and some of the stories behind that. But that's been really the point of the work. Well, I want to pick on you a little bit because the way that this format, because it's been a little bit of time since we've done this, so um, I'm going to give you a little introduction to the format. So Kelly and I will talk for about five, ten more minutes up front, and then we'll send you all to talk at your tables about some questions, and then we'll come back for some question and answer. So you'll get a chance for question and answer with Kelly, but we'll, we'll do it in this order. But I, I want to ask a couple questions around this first. And yeah. The first is I want to notice that like, you and I are two white cis guys, yeah. 
right? Um, that for both of us, this idea of representation um, for God and for what the, you know, what Martin Luther King called the beloved community, but what the, the communion of saints looks like, that representation has become a big piece for both of us. And I wonder, you know, as somebody who grew up in rural Illinois, yeah. uh, and for whom the church, maybe tradition that you grew up with was not an iconographic tradition, like how did you find your way into this? Like what, yeah. what gets you from where you were to where you are now? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I grew up in uh, Chicago, near Chicago. I'm a PK. My dad's a Baptist preacher. And uh, yeah, I grew up in Illinois, always drawing on bulletins as a kid, just like always been drawing and doing art. So there's a start there. But um, for me, the spirituality and the type of Christianity that I grew up with, and my dad, and I don't think you'd mind me saying this because we have a lot of conversations about it, but it was really kind of like about transcendence. It was Jesus and I versus the world almost. And I think what really happened, really jumping forward, is I went to school in Greenville, Illinois, which is about an hour and a half from here, Greenville University. And it was really there, I, I, I studied religion and art, which ended up working out perfectly, but um, they're really kind of starting to challenge some of the ways that Jesus and I versus the world just, just makes it where you just, you basically end up with heaven, you just be you and Jesus. Like it's a very lonely way to think and a lonely way to understand the world. And um, it wasn't until after college, really, those was challenged was I, I ended up moving to a farming community, um, and it was a monastic community of men and women, uh, couples, priests, um, and it was called the Good Earth Farm. And we organized our life with daily prayer and all this stuff, uh, or the Book of Common Prayer in our life together. But our main mission was growing food for food pantries. And just that act of, um, and some of the homeless poor that were in the area would come and volunteer at the farm and we were having meals and weeding carrots next to total strangers and the conversations that would come up. Just spiritu the spirituality that I started to engage with was less about transcendence and more about communion, engagement, and embodiment. That the way that we use things and our, 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 like the tangible physical representation of things in the world is of the utmost like spiritual significance. Like putting your fan, <laughs> like shoveling, pig shit into a thing and caring for them. It's just something, you know, you're, it's tangible, it's real, and the care and, and the tenderness about it. And um, it was during that time where one of the priests, Father Tom, asked me if I'd ever, I'd always done art and was doing landscape stuff there, and he asked if I'd ever done icons, and I had it. And so I did what all iconographers really start to do, which I just started tracing, just the old images, just taking books and tracing some of the old images. And I was doing that for a while, and then um, it got to a point where I was, we, we were having a lot of these conversations as we're uh, farming and, and tending the earth and, and caring for our neighbors, like how do we be people in Jesus' words who consider the lilies of the field, like appreciate and have a gratefulness in our relationship with the earth as we're also trying to take care of each other and other people. And that, so that became the focus of my first icon. It's called, I can show you later, but it's called Christ Consider the Lilies. And um, it's a good first try. It's not my best work. It was very shaky. Um, Jesus almost looks like surprised that the lilies are in his hands. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but what it did is the community, they embraced it. Like all my fellow people that I was living with, they really loved the image. And I thought it was kind of like, okay. But they put it in our common prayer space. And I think what that did in that entrance into iconography is it showed me how art, 
and specifically art in our churches can be a placeholder for a community's thought and prayer, but most importantly, it's action. And I think that's the most exciting part for Evie and I in doing this work is these communities are really, in commissioned work, is really entering that dialogue on what kind of images they want to put before themselves. Like, what does it mean for Holy... Um, so grateful that Mama is at Holy Communion. Like, what does it mean to place that image before your community and how that centers your thought and your prayer, you know, at Holy Communion, but your action in, in St. Louis community. And so, I mean, I think that's the art that we put in front of the, in the poetry and the music and the drama, all this stuff, the shows we watch, whatever, it really does inform in a, in a way in how we not only relate to each other and talk about that artwork, but also how it informs our, our um, the way that we are in the world and are with each other. Um, and, and so I think that that initial uh, spark of starting the iconography, it's been like 12 years now, yeah. that was the main kind of thing I saw out of that was that thought and prayer and action that was. I, I think your conversation about like that the image of Jesus got frozen. Locked. Locked, yeah. I, that's such a, it's something we don't pay a lot of attention to in the church, but it's just so very real, mm. right? Like there are communities in the liturgical churches that are very much trying to do liturgy as if it is 1874 right. or trying to do liturgy, trying to, trying to worship as if it is 1920 something or 1660 something, right? And, and the art and the way in which we engage the divine gets locked in a particular set of symbols, a particular kind of language, a particular way of thinking, that I think sometimes mm, there's a benefit at times, right? There's something to the otherworldliness, so that, that when you step into a church, like you're stepping into this threshold of like, oh, like there are all these things that I see and I smell and I hear and it indicates you know, I, I really don't listen to pipe organ music except in church, right? right. <laughs> and so it, it indicates that something is specific is going on. But at the other side, like there's a real danger to that. Mm. Um, that it's as if God is not present. It's what I, I remember one of your images that really stuck with me is the image of the Holy Family. It's a, you know traditionally the flight to Egypt, but you depicted them as a Latino family somewhere in the U.S., Mexico border region. Mm -hmm. And it, it is that identifying God with what is going on now mm. um, in a way that really engages. And, and frankly, angers sometimes. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the, definitely the most uh, I have faced in St. Louis um, in terms of uh, hateful posts and social media and you know, we, we ended up having a talk with uh, somebody who engages with the FBI anti-hate task force after mama came to Holy Communion, right? Um, so, and you and I have talked and I, you face that in your social media a lot. Mm -hmm. All that is to say, like, I think helping to understand like the breadth and the power that you bring to these images is really important. But I want to ask you to talk about one in particular before we send people to their table, because it's one that you've not talked a lot about, but I'm going to make you talk about it in a second. Um, talk about the image that the National Cathedral has commissioned you to, to, to do, yeah. and, and about that line of sainthood that's yeah. playing with it. So um, 
this can't leave this room, no. Uh, <clears throat> he says with a microphone strapped to yeah, his chest yeah. for a podcast. No, um, Evie and I are really honored. So in um, a month, we'll be delivering it, a new icon to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. that um, we were commissioned to do. And uh, first got contacted la early last year. And the cathedral wanted to do a new icon um, an icon of this person, but this is the first time that they've actually worked with their parents, and it's of Matthew Shepard. And Matthew Shepard, for those who don't know, um, right around the time of, of Columbine, I can't remember the exact, I think it was 98, was a gay young man who was brutally murdered in Wyoming um, by two other men. Um, he ended up dying a few days later from his injuries. Um, but it really at that time and for those of you who remember it really galvanized the nation in terms of having these conversations about hate specifically hate against the lgbtqai community in america um, but for um, me it was really interesting because uh, the cathedral out and rightly so wanted to involve matthew's parents who are still living and uh, very much in their own right activists during the time of the trial, um, they both sp spoke so eloquently and beautifully about how they didn't want either of the men who killed their son to, ha to have the death penalty. I mean, just amazing people. And so having this initial conversation with them and what the cathedral wanted to do, this icon, and they both said, well, our son wasn't a saint. He snuck out at 12 at midnight, you know, and <laughs> <clears throat> did all this and that. And the dad, specifically Dennis, was, you know, very, just didn't know what he thought about it. And uh, just had a lot of conversations. Um, and I think, I think the thing that I was wrestling with is, am I going to be, and Evie and I, we were like, are we going to be so wedded to the tradition of iconography that, this maybe couldn't happen. That we wouldn't be able to do this, this beautiful portrait of this young man for the cathedral. And it kind of came like, no, like this is really important. And so for us, we started to have more conversations and um, at the cathedral, if you've ever been there, Matthew's buried in the columbarium, he's buried there. So they ended up interring inter inter him there because of the family was so worried about his remains being dug up and. Uh, vandalized um, and so but people as they almost have started pilgrimage have created a pilgrimage to Matthew's grave setting prayers um, and letters to him and to the family just how much his that and as some people have said that there was a place for them in the church they felt like there's a place for them in the church because of the way that Matthew was received, specifically in the Episcopal Church. Um, and that was kind of the key that for us is really thinking about these prayers and these letters. Like, what if the gold leaf that made up the icon wasn't gold, but actually the really holy thing and the thing that was holding Matthew and encasing him and, and lifting him up was those, these letters? And so what we ended up coming idea with Matthew's parents and kind of working together that those letters would be the gold leaf that would make up. The, they wouldn't be a halo. They didn't want a halo. But in that sense that that was the, the gold that was going to make up this image. 
And so I think for us that think that's the beauty, and I'm, I'm so grateful that some of it is really hard to wade through and, and these images with different communities, but I think the, it's worth it in the sense that uh, cobbling together a holy pondering, I guess, as I like to call it, of what people mean to us in ways, again, that we can use art to inform the way that we are with one another and see God in a new way and each other in a new way. So I th hope I shared enough of what you're... Yeah, that's, that's... I think that's a really good place to pivot. So Kelly came up with these questions. A lot of times I work with somebody on questions. And with Kelly, he's got such a theological mind uh, that Kelly just wrote these, and they're wonderful. So invite you all to talk at your tables for a few minutes uh, around these four questions. What is a piece of artwork, visual art, poetry, music, that has moved you? Is there a metaphor, a symbol of God, Jesus, or the Trinity that you particularly connect with? Do you feel represented in the art in most churches? And then what is the purpose of art in our places of worship? So it is right now 722. We'll come back about 740. Okay. Anybody feel really well represented in church art? <laughs> yeah, 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 I feel really well represented. Time, I'm not blonde enough, right? I do, I do, I, it's new, you know? I'm still figuring it out. Um, what questions came up? What thoughts came up? What, what do you want to share with the wider group, or what do you want to ask Kelly? You're all so shy. Jean. I immediately left to the assumption because of the work, I thought a woman had painted it. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question is, do you ever do other people think that or is that my own? I got no, I got nominated for uh, female Catholic artist of the year. <laughs> um, and I did not. It was in 2019. Um, no, I used to get American Girl magazines in the mail as a kid. And, um, at the time, I was like, I hated it, but I, I love my name now. But, no, a lot of people assume, it's a good question, a lot of people assume I'm a woman, and I usually don't, I just kind of, if I don't have to correct them, I won't. But so, the, so, the, there's a lot of people that usually like, insert themselves, like, Kelly's actually, a, you know. But, yeah. No, but I think it's really interesting, and it, I think what it goes to as well, especially like the social media space, and some of the conversations that have happened. Um, you know, Mike was addressing it briefly, but about some of the work on social media is, and we can talk about this. I'm curious if this came up in any, any of the rooms. It's just how quick we are now in our time to just like speak into something, and and without just like sitting with it and observing. And I think that's something that I really feel like art can do is really teach us how to observe mm -hmm. and just like sit with something. And um, so people quickly speaking like, that woman artist that made blah, 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 you know, before they even have done any observation or kind of trying to even attempt to understand, you know. So can I that brings that up. Can I play with that for just a second? Yeah. <laughs> what I hear in Jean saying that is a compliment too, right? 
I, I, you know, in the same way that when I hear feminist scholars wonder if the Gospel of Luke was written by a woman, because it, a lot of your work slows down and takes a different perspective than we're used to. And it has often been marginalized voices that have done that across history, um, and particularly in religious art spaces, that often is women's voices. So I hear that, too. And I'll, um, I should say a lot, of, and Evie's sitting over there, but a lot of her, uh, a lot of her, our work is collaborative and we're doing together and um, in coming up with a lot of these images and um, think from Evie's own voice and her, what she sees in the world, there's that perspective that's getting added to too and then I'm just painting it, you know, or she almost, she's commissioning a lot of the work in a way. Mm -hmm. So there's that to you. So um, I come from a Mennonite background uh, from Kansas City, and uh, so when I, the feeling represented or not, uh, I'm studying stained glass windows and imagery uh, in stained glass windows, and um, thinking about how I, I wish there was more art uh, around Jesus, or uh, swords becoming plowshares, mm. <laughs> Jesus. Um, speaking out against, uh, speaking uh, nonviolent kind of methods. Uh, and so, you know, traveling around looking at stained glass, there's very few that I'm finding of your piece about, you know, of Jesus breaking the rifle. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful <laughs> and not seen very much mm -hmm. at all. Or, or all of the nationalism that's often in churches, whether it's flags at the National Cathedral, there there was a Confederate flag in one of the you know stained glass windows. Fortunately, that came down. Um, but that's where I kind of think about representation of mm -hmm. some of the Mennonite values around nonviolence and um, separation of church and state. And, uh, so much of the artwork uh, fails to, to address that. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it speaks to, I mean, I think a lot, a lot of what ha happens is when you have these people who, again, who are, that they have some resistance towards God as a black man or a black, or Christ being depicted as a black man or Mary as a black woman, or as the Holy Family, as a refugee family in the desert, or you know what have you, is really they're they're trying to, res they've built up this version of God in their head, and they're trying to protect it. But the thing is that God doesn't need protecting, and so that's what you have is, and I think it's in hearing this a lot of congregations too. And I'm, I'm not the only one making artwork like this. There's plenty of amazing artists making work centered on nonviolence and breaking guns and um, nonviolent resistance and all of these things. Um, but I think it's a really important dialogue that also needs to be happening in the churches. Not only these image of gods, but these kind of very striking images that of Christ, of dismantling the, the gun, dismantling the, uh, the religiosity of the time and you know, all of these things. It's, it's a lot of work to cobble together finding new images for those kind of things, so. Paul. Just on a, on a similar vein, um, you know, white guy. So, uh, you know, obviously, I, are there many places that, I, you know, I'm just trying to think. We're talking about 
male-dominated artwork. Is there any icons that depict depict God as a woman? I, I, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Well, so the recent one. Let me go grab it because I'll just. I'll <laughs> <laughs> So we had Probably a funny a whole place you can fit. Yeah, <laughs> we had a funny one. Um, I painted this this summer, and as a farmer, I always loved this image. And it was just a lot going. There's a lot going on, and I've always thought that in a lot of conversations in the church, we don't we don't talk about Jesus calling himself a mother hen enough. And this comes from a mosaic that's it's on the it's in Jerusalem. It's in the Mount of, uh, it's a church on the in the Mount of Olives, and I can't remember the name of it. I don't know Latin very well. I can't say it very well. Um, but Jesus literally he's called himself a mother hen and protecting and twelve chicks representing the disciples, but also the twelve tribes of Israel. You know, I wish I could Matthew. I wish I could cover you as a hen covers her chicks and. Some people went online and it was like, Jesus didn't, Jesus never called himself a hen. <laughs> like he's, he's never referred to himself in the female. And then you had, you know, priests, not, you know, priests like Mike, Mike didn't, but. Uh, this time. Yeah, I don't think, I didn't think you want to get trolled, but uh, priests going on like, well, actually, in Matthew's gospel, he, he said this. And so, I, I mean, you still, you have things that Jesus literally used, the metaphor, in the feminine, and that's just it. And I think this is really the work of Richard Rohr is he's, we can only talk about God through metaphor. And I mean, if you think of it, you know, God, it, Jesus never said it is. So as soon as you say it is, you're kind of protecting something. And that's, that's why I think it's so beautiful that Jesus is always like, you know, the kingdom of God, it's kind of like, you know, treasure buried in a field. You know, it's like, it's kind of like a mother hand protecting, like God is like a, He's using the feminine. He's using these stories and these beautiful things. And so um, trying to capture that in, you know, certain ways. Again, the, tri the work that we did with Mark on the, um, the conversation we had with Mark Bazzuti-Jones, that was part of him, is that the Trinity, um, it shouldn't be um, that sh uh, uh, profound, but it actually is in our space that God can be depicted as three women of color, and that's the Trinity, and they're holding hands. And what does that mean in terms of how we see God and things? So, um, yeah, that was an interesting one this summer. Claudia, did you have one? Uh, we just got there. Grant. I've noticed a lot of your work, um, and I mean, it's sort of the the icon in general is just lends itself to this, but prophetic critique, um, offering uh, a surprising positive image. Um, but I'm wondering about, you've depicted um, scenes of devastation, scenes of grief. Mm. I wonder about the role of lament yeah. in, in iconography in general, right. uh, but in your work specifically. Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, I, I think when really the best example is Mama, that icon. When George Floyd passed and as just the conversations that were happening in the country and when what really was, and um, I mean, Abby and I were just shook to our core, all of us were, and what was, and what was happening. And 
at that time, um, it, what really was, we, Evie and I saw a picture of, of, that was circling around of George Floyd as a toddler, maybe three years old, and his mother holding him. And it was just like, ugh. And Evie immediately was just like, it looks like a pieta, you know? And so we immediately started having these conversations about what was an image that we could create that not only mourn the, the death of George Floyd and that mothers are continually losing their sons and daughters who are unjustly murdered by the state in this country. It's so sad, but what are we gonna do so this doesn't keep happening? And I think that exploration <laughs> of the icon and the conversations that Evie and I were having, like, like at first the, the mother, mother's eyes, we, we had her focused on, on, on the, the Christ figure, but then, and I, that's originally how I wanted it, but Evie suggested maybe she, she should be looking at the viewer. Maybe the eyes were too focused on the death, and as soon as we changed that, it was like, yes, you know, her looking at the viewer. And I, what was really interesting is, um, in the creation of Mama, we were having a lot of conversations with our black friends and people in our community because there's, there was already this dialogue going around about was it healthy showing that in America we're continually seeing black men and women lynched on videos and there's this constant, almost redemptive violence that happens and those conversations were important and I think they're there, but there's, there was already a dialogue going back and forth of whether it was needed or important should we show it or should we not in the community? So I think that was vital in that creation. But I think in the lament, I think it, it always should move us towards action. It should always move us towards resurrection in some form. Not ignoring the death, not ignoring what has happened. But that you'll notice in Mama, um, if you look at it, there's no nail holes in his hands. And that's because unfortunately the black man in, in America is lynched. And it's um, provocative, but it's a sad truth that if white Christians in America, if we're going to address the evil that is white supremacy in our culture, we're going to have to really understand <laughs> the sad truth that the metaphor that we have here and now for the cross, and this is the work of James Cone, the theologian, yeah. um, is the lynching tree in America. And so, again, it's a great question, I but I think for Mama was really, um, it's been our hope, but I'm happy to, you know, I use that word very carefully. I'm, we're grateful that the image has been used in some of the protests that were going on in 2020, and several communities have embraced that as a way to lament, but more importantly, to move communities towards having the hard conversations and not running away from them, and addressing the deep pain that is in our communities so that therefore we can heal. Yeah. There's a. It was fascinating. I, I got a call in November last year. I remember really vividly because we were on a road to Thanksgiving with my family down in New Mexico. And a friend of mine is a religion journalist. Um, and I hardly ever get interviewed by him, but I'll sometimes like send him places. But uh, Jack Jenkins is his name. I've had him on Theology Untapped in the past. And Jack is like, Mike. Uh, do you know that mom, was mama stolen? And I was like, well, not when I left St. Louis, but hopefully not before. <laughs> and what had happened was that um, Catholic University of America, the law school had 
was it a commissioned copy or was it a like they just bought a copy? Yeah, they they asked permission to print a huge kind of. Yeah. yeah. So there was a there was a copy made of Mama that had gotten removed from CUA. And not only had that happened, but there'd been this like whole student movement, a, a student on campus had figured out that he could garner attention for himself by protesting this thing. And it, it became this whole conversation on Fox News and all sorts of, and it all <laughs> happened kind of the Thanksgiving week. Um, and so like the Washington Post and the New York Times and a couple, like they, they had these little tiny things about image of George Floyd Jesus missing. But, but Mama has entered the psyche of a group of people that really oppose the kind of iconoclastic iconography that Mama represents. The, um, the sort of, there's, there's a real resistance to that image in a way that is surprising. And what's, what's really funny is like, that time, Holy Communion hardly got, I mean, I think Sojourners interviewed Bishop Dion, and that was as close as we came to anything with it. Um, but it was all about the copy at CUA and whether a Catholic college should display this image. Um, and I love the way that you, in those interviews, the places that interviewed you, when they would say, well, is it Jesus or George Floyd? And what would you say? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I, I got to say, that was the work of Evie and I in a conversation with one of my mentors, Rick McPeak, who some people in here know, too. Um, yeah, it was the best answer. Yeah, just, just yes. Michael. So uh, you talked a little about the resistance, and you also talked about the, you mentioned, I think, communion of saints. Yeah. My, uh, many of us, I think, traditional religion in general, were taught that images, uh, artwork, should be done by saints, or right. saints, because they did something. Right. They did something important. They healed somebody, or there was a miracle, or they. Your imagery, I would imagine, that's one of the reasons you get pushback. Right. Right? Yes. Could you talk a little about that? Yeah. Well, I think there's a few things there. So for those, it's a communion of saints and how, well, first this, I, I think with the Catholic Church specifically, it is, it's like a, in order for a person to be a saint within the Catholic Church, and this is really speaking very concisely, so there's much more to it, but typically I have to have two miracles, uh, uh, individual and proven you know, through research and all this stuff in order for uh, someone to become a saint. Um, but for me, I think what's been interesting is, is <laughs> maybe talking about having a conversation in the church, a real conversation. And there's, there's other Episcopal churches where people very much believe that saints should have miracles that I've met. I've met. But the idea of what is a miracle is it more of a miracle that, you know, that someone may or may have healed someone from afar of an illness? Or is it more of a miracle that St. Francis met a leper and had such compassion on him that he gave him his clothes and kissed him and embraced him and made him a part of his community? Is that more of a miracle, that actual human touch and interaction? Is it more of a miracle that John Lewis crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the 60s, got beat over the head, 
almost died, and then came back the next day. That's, that seems to me to be more of a miracle. I think that's kind of the conversations we need to be having in the church, is this real physical representation of God's love that is right here. And I think for me, those are the people, the individuals that I think uh, I very much connect to. And again, bringing it from up here down to earth, and the people that Dorothy Day, who was welcoming the sick and the homeless poor into her midst, um, to Martin Luther King, who was loving where it hurts, you know, and speaking up, and he was killed for it. Like, these are the people that, I think that, that is a miracle. And so I think that those kind of conversations are really important to have um, in the church, but those are the people that I, I really hope to, to highlight because I think they're really teaching us about the, the physical representation of God's love in the world. And that, I just, I, I can't, can't say enough. That's just what Abby and I connect to more than something that's in the clouds. Well, I, I mean, like, that's interesting because you, you've touched on a couple of things. Like, in the Episcopal Church, we don't have the miracle criteria, per se, right? No. Like, we, we get voted on. Right. It's, we, we, we democratize everything in the Episcopal <laughs> Church, right? But the, so there's votes. And right now, we're not exactly sure. We, we're sure about one saint calendar, but we got about three other ones floating out there. And, eh, right? We're not sure which one counts. But one thing that is consistent with that Catholic idea, a lot of times the miracles are posthumous, right? It's like Oscar Romero was able to be canonized after they were able to prove that somebody praying and interceding, like Oscar Romero interceding for them is what caused the miracle after he died. Right. And what I find so compelling about some of your imagery is you do, whether it's Matthew Shepard or George Floyd, um, even Marsha P. Johnson, sometimes you're able to identify figures who in their lifetime, you know, and the people that knew them alive, like Matthew Shepard's dad, might be like, don't put a halo on my son. Yeah. <laughs> right? But for a kid that grew up in Denver, Colorado, and who was gay, and who was watching all of that play out on TV, and Matthew died down in Port Collins, right? That like what Matthew meant to me and to so many queer folks my age, and this dates me because I'm, I'm of a certain age now, but, but like who Matthew is and what his death and what his mom did afterward and all of the art and all of the activism that has happened in his name afterward is also in its way a kind of miracle, right? And so how do you, like what do you define as a miracle? What do you define as a saint? Um, and, and, you know, like you're very Episcopal adjacent these days, right? But, um, but there's also a tradition in the Episcopal Church that we get from another Episcopal artist, Madeline Lingle, mm. who wrote to people and said, canonize your own saints. Mm. Um, she talked about St. J.S. Bach and St. Einstein. That has its own issues, right? But, but like she started <laughs> canonizing her own saints and talking about them as these holy lives that deserve to be emulated and deserve to be looked to. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. One more thing I forgot too, and it was also interesting, is that it wasn't, it was local congregations within the church who were deciding who saints were for a thousand years. Mm. And it wasn't until like around the year a thousand that the Pope was like, oh no, that's mine. That's my task. Like I'm, I'm the Pope, like this is my, my job. And he took that over, and I think that, that ruined it. <laughs> I mean, it, because these were local congregations are saying, this person, we knew them. She, 
she, in the middle of the night, without anyone knowing, gave food to 100 families and, you know, St. You know, St. Mar, I don't know, St. Mary, Martha, Margaret, we know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they knew her. And then when it kind of, when the papacy took it over, I think what happened is it just, there, people needed proof because they didn't know them. They didn't know the people. And I think that just, I think it's really, it's, I think it's a, a beautiful idea is for the, the church now is, and for, you know, you in St. Louis or Kansas City or wherever you live, just be like, okay, who are the saints that are among us here now that have really have profoundly changed us and are pushing us towards living more lives of love and compassion and fighting against injustice? And who are those people? And take a picture of them and put them on your wall or, you know, commission someone like me or a bunch of other amazing artists that are maybe in other communities to do that. If you really, you know, to have those images, those people to remind you. you know. Make room for one more question. Yeah. Um, I am interested in, um, so you said that you talked about the idea of Jesus getting locked into the, a white male picture. And so I think noting that like I'm a white person in this room and that there can be a temptation to fall into like white saviorism um, or to just interact with other like white people and try to find solutions or, or communities of color. I guess I'm wondering how, what I'm sensing is like you've talked about encounter and like building the community in these really practical interactions with people. And so I'm wondering how you, um, how you practice accountability to communities that you're depicting um, and then how you challenge yourself and just um, and like your community um, as well. And then my secondary question is how do you sustain yourself because I imagine you get a lot of backlash um, online and in other spaces. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, questions, yeah. I think for Okay, the, I think the best place to start, and I think this is for, I mean, I, I'm 36, I'm still young, and, but I, I, I think the biggest work for me now as a person and as an artist is to stay inspired. And like as an artist, like I need other people to do that and communities. Um, and I think what's what's sad is you have a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people my age. There's kind of the tortured artist kind of syndrome that's taken over, and it, it's not a very healthy way to live. And I think a better question is not like what are you making when you're a tortured artist, but maybe the art that's being created when you're suffering is maybe the healthiest part of you. <laughs> you know, and for me, I. I'm not perfect by any means and struggle all the time. And, um, but I think the idea of God, and why I like iconography is the fact that it actually is a very communal art. And, um, and just, he, just interacting with, yes, you know, I'm white, cis, a male in America, but, um, 
really, some of these conversations that we get to, Evie and I get to have with these churches, it, it's a struggle. It's, things come up, you know, uh, and talking with other artists, black artists and, and other artists that are doing similar work, uh, women, female artists that are doing amazing work within the church and outside of it. Like we get to be involved in all these dialogues and that's, you know, I'm eternally grateful that I get to do that through this work. I think all of it though, what it does is that it is, is, is uh, that, that struggle and the, the work of cobbling together um, and, and having the hard conversations um, is just absolutely important in our time. I gotta honor what I don't know and I, and I think that's what's beautiful about the church and it's and the best part of it is that because it's made up of so many different people, we have this, in, in the most beautiful form of it, we have each other to teach each other how to see. And I, I just gotta say this, I know we have a, Do it. but no. this, this has been sitting over here and, and this is an icon that actually means a lot to me. And, um, and it's really getting to your question though, is that I, when I first started, back in Ohio, I, I started an icon of uh, Christ the Panocrat, or it's Christ the Teacher, where he's like holding a scripture and he's got the holy hands. And I started it, and it was really frustrating me. I was still beginning iconography, and um, I ended up calling it Baby Hands Jesus. <laughs> because his face was big, but his hands was like so tiny, and I could not get it right, and it was like so frustrating. And so it was just like, and I just like put it up on a shelf and it was there for like two years. And then uh, one day I got some new, new gold leaf and I was like, I was like trying to find something and I took it and I was like, eh, I, I did not like this. So I'm just gonna gold leaf over it. So I did it, but then when I did it, I noticed that because I'd reworked the icon so much, the paint stood up and so you could, I could see the raised face of Christ on it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is something. And, but I didn't really know what. And so when you looked from far away, you know, it looked like just like a plain gold leaf board. board. When you get closer, you can come look at this later. You can see the face of Christ. And um, I had two priests were, were, uh, where, I, where, where I was painting at that time. And they came in and they both, I was showing them some of the stuff I was doing and they both looked at it. And at the same time they said, oh my God, that's the cloud of unknowing. Mm -hmm. And what the cloud of unknowing is this 14th century book and I didn't know anything about it. And just really briefly, it's, it's an anonymous author, but he's basically saying that um, we can only, through not, we can only get so with our mind. Knowledge can only get us so far to knowing God. But the more that we put God under a cloud of forgetting or a cloud of unknowing, the more we'll be closer to God through our heart and our experience. They saw it. They named it. I didn't, <laughs> I needed them to name what, what this was. And I think, for me, I think that is, that is really the work of, of art in our churches and what we can do for one another in our communities. But as an artist, I need other artists who are completely different from me to name the racism that might be within me, name the ways that I'm not seeing my neighbor rightly, the ways that I might be damaging myself with the ways that I'm living and, and friends, you know, just the ways that I'm creating that maybe aren't sustainable. Um, and so, I mean, I think this, this icon's always meant a lot to me because it it's really gets at the heart of, I hope that some of the conversations that you had tonight and heard is that you need each other to learn how to see 
And hopefully the artwork that we put in front of us, not only in churches, but just in your home, above your bed, like wherever you're living, like these things that are going to move you towards wanting more beauty and wanting more justice and wanting people who inspired you, your grandmother who made a damn good banana bread, and you want to remember that, like all these things, you know? So thank you for, I'm, I'm assuming we don't have right time, but thank you yeah. for. Well So Theology on Tap is back and unpredictable at the moment. So if you want to know about the next Theology on Tap, we're hoping to host one early December. Um, but make sure your name is and email address are on the green clipboard over there. Before you get to the green clipboard, take a look. Kelly and Evie have brought a bunch. sorry, have brought a bunch of art with them, um, and I'm sure they'd be happy to talk with you about it and let you purchase some if you want. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. I hope you'll join us again for Theology on Tap in our new in-person world. But Kelly, what you just said I think is so important because this idea of it takes a community to see the image of God is something that is pretty baked in to our ecclesiology, to our sense of what the church is, to our sense of what God is. Um, and frankly, I just feel so honored that a neighbor and somebody who I'm considering a friend uh, has become such a, you're such a humble guy, right? Like, you're, you're so referent, right? But it's so cool to me that um, somebody who I've got connections to is helping the church writ large re-image and begin this conversation that hopefully we're just at the beginning of, of mm. what does it mean to reflect God's image and what does it mean to see Christ in one another and break free from some of the ways that we've gotten locked down. Mm. So will you thank all you. help me thank Kelly Latimer. Thank you.